And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, Then some of those who belonged to the the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the, the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change for the customs that and will change, excuse me, the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in in Haran, and said to him, Go out from the land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the, tw- and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who, was made, uh, who made him ruler over Egypt and over and, yeah, and Canaan. And great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Harmon in Shechem. But at this time, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At the time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he brought up for he was brought up for 3 months in his father's house and when he was exposed 
Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them and they were quarreling and and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, and he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for your feet from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings and I've come to deliver them and now come uh, and now come. I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside in their hearts and turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. God turned away and gave them over to worship uh, the hosts of heavens, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Raphan, and the images you made to worship. I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua and they deposed the nations that God drove before our fathers. So it was in the days until David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of 
place of my rest. Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, or you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word, that you would give us eyes to see, hear what is going on, and a heart to understand, that we would not resist the Holy Spirit and the instructions uh, that he has for us uh, this very morning. We believe that your word is living and active, and so we ask that you, O God, would be living and active in our midst through the, the ministry of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. As I already mentioned, I, I like to, to work through books of Scripture and I like to take uh, chunks. And we normally don't take quite a chunk this big, but, but all of this uh, flows together. And I want us to get today the, the big picture, what, what is going on here. But before we get into that, I want to just kind of ask you uh, a question have you ever had someone in your life bring a false charge against you? Someone accuses you of something and it is completely without base and it is completely wrong. And then on top of that, the, the very thing that they accuse you of is easily demonstrable as something that is in their life, something that they too are guilty of. That they bring some kind of false charge against you and it is in a sense calling uh, the pot, calling the kettle black as it were. We have that going on in this very passage. That here is Stephen, a a man of God, preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus, trying to, to win people to the Lord. And the opponents, those who are resisting the word of God, are saying, In a sense, you are denying the Bible. You are throwing out the law. You are throwing out uh, what we would call the Old Testament. You have nothing to do with it and you're not keeping it and you're not obeying it. And you are blaspheming God. You're making a mockery of him and all that he has done. And yet we see as Stephen goes through, who is it that is the, the people that are disobeying the word of God? It is the very ones who have missed that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And even Jesus over and over in His preaching and His teaching is telling people, just like John the Baptist before Him, that people need to turn to God and repent. That all of us are sinners, are in need of a Savior. This morning our main point is simply this. Do not be ashamed of having your great need of Jesus exposed. We have here in this passage that that Stephen is preaching the word of God and the people are getting upset about it. The leaders in these synagogues are are becoming irate. It's, It's making their blood boil. And then Peter, excuse me, Stephen goes through a long a reminder of all of the main events of Old Testament history. And he is pointing out God's people have sinned. God's people 
have sinned. We have a history of walking away from the Lord. We have a history of needing a Savior. We have a history of not turning to God when God has been gracious to us. And then he turns to them at the end of this sermon and he says, you stiff-necked people. He, he could almost be quoting right out of Deuteronomy because that's what Moses often called the people of God. A, a stiff-necked people who are uncircumcised in their hearts, who are, who are not turning to God with delight and joy and bending their knee, but rejecting Him as a Christian, as a believer, or even as someone who is searching for the Lord. We need to recognize that God identifies us as sinners so that He can even more show that He is the great Savior. So, don't be ashamed when Scripture exposes a sin. Use the Scriptures to to turn to the Lord Jesus and allow yourself to enjoy a relationship with Him. So first this morning, I want you to see how the preaching of the Gospel uh, brings a division. The preaching of the gospel brings division. So we have here, Stephen is preaching with, with wisdom and knowledge. And you'll just look down through verses 8, 9, and 10. Stephen is full of grace and power and doing wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, and of the Cyrenians and those of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So you have here in Jerusalem, people have come from around uh, the, the world. And these are, are Jewish people and they have their, their synagogues here. And you have people uh, who were freedmen, probably had been slaves at one point and, and bought their freedom. You have people from uh, Alexandria, which was a, a major city at the time. And there was a large Jewish population there. There was also one of the biggest libraries uh, in the world there at various points of, of history. And you have them all gathering from around Asia and they're in Jerusalem here. And, and Stephen is telling them what has happened recently with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he is bringing the wisdom of God. He is ministering with the Spirit. In other words, God is, is behind what Stephen is saying and he is saying it with power and he is captivating an audience. Yet the people, by and large, are rejecting what God has done in the Lord Jesus. And so the opponents of Christianity then stir up trouble and lies. I want to encourage you that sometimes when we share our faith, sometimes when we talk to people about Jesus, we can say everything Right. We can say, we can have the Bible verses on the tip of our tongue. We can be inviting them and saying, please come and have a relationship with Jesus. He wants to forgive you of your sins and He is gracious and loving and kind. And yet, people can and often will reject. And, and sometimes we get discouraged and we say, I don't know why I bother to share my faith because people just reject. I tell you what, Stephen, is preaching the Word of God and rejected it. People heard Paul's preaching and they rejected it. People heard Peter's preaching and and they rejected it. People heard Jesus preach and they rejected it. We shouldn't be surprised when people hear the Gospel and they don't want anything to do with it. 
the, the natural bent of the human heart is to reject the wisdom and knowledge of God. And God in His graciousness, when someone comes to saving faith, it is God in His graciousness which is opening people's hearts and allowing the heart to understand that, that God is actually, according to 2 Corinthians, causing light to shine in the heart of the unbeliever. The point is this. Don't get discouraged. Don't say, well, I'm never going to share my faith again. We shouldn't be surprised when people don't like what the Word of God has to say. And so the opponents of Christianity stir up trouble and lies. So, so they come with these, these false charges in verses 11 uh, through 14. And, and the first charge is that he's blaspheming against Moses. He's speaking against the law. Look at verse 13. This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They're speaking here and, and we are reminded that, that God used Moses on Mount Sinai to bring the law, to bring the Ten Commandments, to write Exodus, to write Deuteronomy. And they are saying, you know, this is the Word of God. And, and here's this guy, Stephen, and he's, he's speaking against it. And, and God's the one that gave us this temple. And he's speaking against that. It is, of course, a false charge. The evidence for the charge that he's speaking against the, the law and against the holy place is they use something that Jesus himself said. In John's Gospel, we are told that, that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back up again. And he was probably standing somewhere around the temple uh, at the time or perhaps inside the temple. And, he, and, and John gives us the commentary, Jesus is talking about his body. That his body is symbolically the temple of the Lord and he will die and it will be raised up in three days. And yet when Jesus goes before the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the charge that they bring against Jesus is he said he would destroy the temple. He said he would tear it down and, and build it back up. And they're thinking, this is the temple that God gave us. How could... Anyone say, let's destroy this temple. The point is, it's a trumped up charge. It's a false charge. And, and at some level, to some degree, they understand what they are doing. They understand because it says they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders in the tribe. And then it says in verse 13, and they set up false witnesses. So they took something that Jesus had said and they completely reinterpreted it. And then they brought out witnesses who said, we heard Jesus say this. And now they're saying, we heard Stephen talk about Jesus saying this. And they used that to say, this guy is opposing God. He's blaspheming Moses and all that Moses had done in giving the law and being a servant of God. And he's blaspheming God. 
We shouldn't be surprised when sharing the gospel causes people to divide. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 18 says for, that the cross is the wisdom of God. That the foolishness of cr- the cross is the wisdom of God. But for, those, for, for us who are being saved, but for those who are perishing, it is foolishness. That, that there are people who hear the gospel and in the natural bent of our sinful hearts say this is dumb. This is stupid. Who would think of such a thing? We have it in our day and age. People look at, at, at Jesus Christ and what He has done and they say, this is dumb. This is idiotic that, that Jesus Christ, that you would believe that there is God and He has a Son. It's barbaric, people say, to think that God would allow someone to die and that His blood would, would pay for our sins. They, they'll say that you know, this is something that comes out of the Dark Ages. This is something that comes from before men were civilized. And now we live in such a great day and age that we know this is foolish and dumb. People have been saying that for 2,000 years. And it hasn't changed the truth of the Gospel. That it is not barbaric, but it is out of love. But it is also out of the holiness of God that, that God should send His one and only Son to pay the penalty for our sins. Because our sins separate us from God. There's an old way of describing it that you can't preach the good news of the Gospel without dealing with the bad news first. That all of us are sinners and our sin separates us from God. And we shouldn't be afraid to say that needs to be dealt with. And only Jesus Christ has dealt with it. Second this morning, do not reject the work of God as God's people have a long history of doing. So you're sitting here today, you're hearing the Word of God and you're hearing what it says about Scripture and how down through all the ages, God's people, people that God is being merciful and gracious to, have this long history of rejecting God. And the challenge to us is, don't respond in that way. Don't respond and say, well, Pastor, I, I don't want to hear how I'm a sinner because I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Don't point out those things. Just pat me on my back and send me on my way and make me feel good. Scripture is the one that exposes these things and it exposes them so that we would turn and find how wonderful Jesus Christ is. Where we understand the depths of our sin, we understand the ever-increasing majesty, the greatness of our Savior. That Christ is sufficient for all of these things. So I want to walk you through these things and there's a number of you know this this really puts to to challenge your your old testament sunday school memory how well do you remember maybe some of you were kids like me and you remember the the sunday school flannel graphs and abraham and there was moses and there was the flaming bush and you know you got to swap out the flannel piece this is going to jog your memory as we we go through these things but it's so important to see that that all of the Old Testament connects and, and flows like a river to what Jesus Christ does as the fulfillment of it. 
So, God establishes, we begin with God establishes a gracious covenant with Abraham and his offspring. So this is where Stephen starts, that God had appeared to Abraham. You can see it in verse 2. He picks it up again in verse 5, 6, and 7. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, even at a a foot's length, but he made a promise to give him as a possession and his offspring, though he had no child. So you'll remember, and and if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you, you just read this. You just have been working through Genesis. And, and Abraham is, is 90 years old. His wife is, is, is or he's, excuse me, 100 and she's 90. They have no kid. And, and God says, you're going to have an offspring. And this offspring's going to inherit the land. And, and uh, Sarah laughs. You know, she's off in the corner. And she just, yeah, okay, sure. Does this guy know how old I am? And yet God does these things. And God makes a promise and God keeps the promise. And the promise is that God will give a seed, an heir to Abraham. And that heir then becomes Isaac. And Isaac has a son who has the 12 sons. Isaac has two sons and Jacob has the 12 sons. And we get the nation of Israel. But even then we are reminded in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, that everyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a recipient of that promise. We might not be an heir according to physical lineage. We might not be Jewish in our heritage. But if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to those promises. Uh, you might remember being a little kid. I always use this example because I never really understood the song when I was little and then I got a little older and I went, oh, it makes sense. But that song, Father Abraham... You know, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. And we think, I am one of them, and so are you. What in the world does that mean? When you're, when you're five, you're like, I, I just don't get it. But then you, you, you read the Scriptures and you see how all of these promises connect and, and flow. And, and the promise of the offspring is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And Galatians says, so that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And then he says in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, Stephen starts with where God starts, and that's this promise to Abraham. And this is how God is going to save the world. It's through Abraham having an heir, and, and it's then through Israel, God using them, and then ultimately it's going to come down to Jesus Christ. But everybody that comes to Jesus gets in on those blessings. So Stephen is bringing those to our mind and then he's, he's bringing up how, how did the people of God end up in Egypt? Well, it was part of God's plan and God had promised that they would be there for 400 years. And then Stephen uses their own charge against them. So remember, they said, you're blaspheming Moses, you're blaspheming the law of God. And Stephen says, uh, guys, have you read your Old Testament lately? I'm not the one that's blaspheming God. Look at how all of our forefathers did it. We need Jesus because we didn't follow God is, is kind of what he's, what he's getting at. So he says uh, in, in verse 23, 
When he was 40 years old, this is Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Then the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are our brothers. You do, uh, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Um, it's like if you ever have brothers and sisters. And, and I'm the oldest one in my family, so I have a brother and a sister. And it's like, it's like when, when the two of them are fighting, you know, being the older, more responsible one, you come in and you say, Stop, you're fighting, you're, you're going to get in trouble. And, and what do your brother and sister say? They, they turn on you. And suddenly the two of them gang up on you. Well, sometimes this happened. Other times it was, it was I was fighting with someone. And then we ganged up on the other one. But, but you turn and you, who made you the boss? Uh, Mom and dad didn't put you in charge. It's, it's the very thing that's going on. But God was going to use Moses. And they're like, who made you the judge? They're doing exactly, in the Old Testament history, exactly what they're charging Stephen with doing, rejecting Moses. And then Moses, of course, flees. Verse 35 makes it real clear. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. Even as he's up on the Mount Sinai, he's getting the oracles of God. He's communing with God. He's, he's writing down the Bible, people. And, and they're going, he's been up there for a long time. I don't think he's there. We're, we're not going to pay attention to him. Even as they come out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea and they're, they're there wandering in the wilderness and they start to get hungry and they, they start to to be angry with God and Moses and say, we would have been better off if we had stayed in Egypt. And then on Mount Sinai, Moses is up there getting the law. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, hey Aaron, let's make an idol. This is the one that brought us out of Egypt. Not this God that Moses said is real. And so, in the very moments when, when God is giving His law, when God is giving His gracious Word, He has just, he has just taken these people that are, that are precious to Him, that were in this affliction, that needed this help, and He, and he, he brought them along, and he, he shepherded them, and He was gentle, and he, he parted the Red Sea, and they walked across it. And then, if there was any fear, He just crashes these waves down on these Egyptians and and everybody starts singing his praises and you just saw the hand of God in Egypt and as you come out of Egypt and then you get to this mountain and you say, God, who's this God that you talk about? Who is this God of Abraham, Isaac, this Yahweh fellow? Let's make a calf. I always use this analogy because I think it is—it so crystallizes for me what's going on in this moment. Picture a wedding ceremony. God is is marrying His people. He's getting ready. You know, He's giving them a covenant, and covenants are like marriages when you bond with someone. And and picture a wedding ceremony. 
And here is God, the groom, and he's getting his tux on and his bow tie, and he's giving the law to Moses. And at the very moment God is getting ready to marry his people, his people are down below cheating on him with another God. It would be like finding out on your wedding day that your future spouse is in the back room inappropriate with someone else. And yet God continues to love his people. And God continues to forgive them. Of course he has anger in this moment and he brings judgment down. But really throughout it all, he continues to show the lavishness of his grace. Who is the one that walks away from God? It is you and I in our sins, wanting nothing to do with God. You see, we get offended sometimes when God exposes our sin. When, when God says, you know, Tim Bertolette, you really blew it here. And not just did you blow it, but this is an awful thing. This is grotesque in my sight. And, and we want to say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. How, how dare you point out these flaws? But God is the one. He's one, speaking the truth. But two, God is the one who is faithful through all of these things. God is the one who does not throw His hands up and say, well, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to save anybody anymore. But He continues to keep His promise that He made to Abraham, that He makes to Moses, that Moses says here, and Stephen reminds us of Deuteronomy 18, that Moses says, there will be a prophet like me. That's Jesus. And the Gospel of John makes it real clear that Jesus is that final true prophet bringing the Word of God, but also He is the Son of God. So who is the one who rejects God's law? Who is the one? In this passage, it's God's people. In our lives, it's us. Notice also they don't understand the purpose of the temple. They often thought in Old Testament Israel that that the temple wasn't just a pattern, but there was something special about the temple. It's God's house. But God says, I don't really need a house. I made all of these things. The house, the temple was to be a symbol that God can come down and dwell with His people. Just like God does so in the Lord Jesus Christ as the completion just like in the book of Revelation at the end where it says God's glory comes down and He walks amongst His people. It was a picture. It was a symbol. But God's people started to not see that the symbol pointed to God, but started to make an idol out of the symbol. The prophets, numerous times, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, rebuke the people of God because they put their trust in the temple and not in God. They'd be sacrificing to idols. They'd be doing all kinds of unpure things. And then they'd come into the temple and they'd say, we worship God. God's not going to destroy us because we have the temple. It's the special house. And yet they missed what the temple pointed to. Stephen, really, you know, I mean, this is really kind of a jab here that he doesn't hold back and he uses the, the whole of the Old Testament to say, look at who we are. We need 
a Savior. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, it grates them. They get upset. He says to them, you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Remember the parable that Jesus tells about a man who who rents out his vineyard and he sends people, his servants regularly to collect the dues for the rent of the vineyard. And the people renting the vineyard, they beat some of these servants up. They, they spit on them. They kick them out. They never pay the rent. And then the owner says, I'll send my son to collect because surely they'll listen to my son. When the son comes into the vineyard, they say, it's the son. If we kill the son, the vineyard will be ours. It's a picture of all of your Old Testament and all that goes on in the Gospels. God's people reject the Word of God, reject the Word of God, reject the prophets, beat some up, kill some, throw them in cisterns. If tradition is right, they cut Isaiah in half. And then Jesus comes. And he offers salvation and he offers forgiveness. And he says, all of these things that you've done wrong, you can be forgiven of. I am the righteous one sent by my Father. And they kill him. And they don't repent. Don't let that be us. That we go through our lives doing things our own way. That we give lip service to to following the Word of God. That we're, we're the good Sunday school and church attender. That I am here every week. That we get, we get wrapped up, excited about a building like they got excited about the temple. But we miss the heart of God. Don't let it be us that we, we become stiff-necked that, that every time I hear the Word of God and it says something about me being a sinner or says I need to change or repent in some way and, and we, we just bristle and we say, how dare we talk about those things? Let our hearts be softened. That, that the graciousness of, the, of God in the New Covenant through what Jesus Christ has done is that He sends the Holy Spirit to us. So the book of Hebrews says to the church, and sometimes in the church there are both a mix of believers and unbelievers when you gather in a crowd. And He says, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Couple applications then, and I've been saying these things. One, we are like Israel. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him 
the iniquity of us all. Am I stiff-necked? Or do I bend the heart to the Lord Jesus because I see what He's done? Second, God's kindness is to lead you to repentance. This is something that Paul says in the book uh, of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 2. Or do you not presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He said, sorry, he said, do not presume. In other words, God's people thought they had the law. They thought they were good. And over and over again, God is patient. God is patient. God wants to see them repent. And they assumed they were fine. Sometimes people go their whole lives to church. They hear these messages and messages like this over and over again. And they say to themselves, I'm not that bad. This is for those sinners out there. I grew up in a good home. I never fell into drugs and alcohol and the big sins. And yet you miss that your whole life, God has been patient with you. God has been so kind and sparing you from those things. God has been so merciful and He does this because He wants you to turn to Him. Where are you in your relationship with God? And then finally, make sure you know your Bible. Do you really know the Bible and does it lead you to the Lord Jesus? You see, Stephen knew the Bible and he knew this whole history and all of these things. And, you know, he probably could have gone into a lot more in the prophets. He's not really saying anything that the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos hadn't already said. And, and part of this being filled with the Spirit and wisdom is he, is he is saturated with the Word of God. But if you know your Bibles, it leads you to Jesus Christ. There was a lot we could say about cults and other religions out there and people that think they know the Bible and never really leads them to Jesus as the Savior. But I want to leave you with the challenge. Does knowing your Bible drive you to Jesus and to be regularly walking with the Lord and repenting of your sins? This is what Stephen does in this passage. He points us to our incredible need so that we might see just how incredibly big and mighty and awesome Jesus is as a Savior. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And even if you are a Christian and you say, yes, I know these things, I've heard this a hundred times, Pastor Tim, where are you in your walk with the Lord? Is Jesus real and life-giving to you? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, There's just so much here in these passages, and we just really did a whirlwind tour, but we are reminded of all of those stories in the Old Testament. They're for us today, just as much as they happened, just as much as they were for the people when you first wrote them down. They remind us 
They expose us in our sins. They show us just how great and and unending you are in your mercy and your love and your steadfastness that we wander from you. And yet you, in your great love and faithfulness, sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just praise you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.